I'm uh, Pastor Michael, and uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about suffering and grief. This life is full of heartache and sorrow. I think about the war in Ukraine. I don't know if you have seen the reports of Bucha. Bucha is a little town north of Kiev. Yeah, several weeks it was occupied by Russian soldiers, and then um, when they withdrew, 300 civilians were found dead. Their bodies left unburied in the streets. And uh, many of the bodies were found badly mangled and mutilated, which are signs of harsh interrogations and torture. And I have enough of an imagination that, that I can imagine. This is the brutality of war. And it's not unique to this conflict, but this is what happens, this is how all wars are fought. There are atrocities. People kill each other and they do it ruthlessly without compassion or mercy. And we might wonder, where is God in all of this? Does he not see? Why doesn't he intervene? And the question then is, how do we reconcile the love of God with the sufferings of this world? How do, how do these two seemingly impossible things go together? What is the Bible's answer to this? And the Bible's answer is that they go together in the life of Jesus. They go together in the story of Easter. Easter is the story of a brutal death and then a glorious resurrection. And I want you to know it's not just Jesus' resurrection, but it is ours as well. Because Jesus' resurrection is a model, it's a, a pattern for us to follow. And so we're going to read the text, this is Romans chapter 8. The text is about um, our resurrection because of Jesus' resurrection. So let me read it to you, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of God. 
I have three points here. We're going to look at our groaning. Number two, we're going to look at future, future glory. And then finally, we're going to look at his groaning. So number one, our groaning. Verse 22 says that this life is marked by groaning. The Greek word there is sustenazo. Uh, it's a very graphic word. It's a word that describes the sound of soldiers dying on the battlefield. It's a terrible sound. It's a sound full of agony and pain. So the Bible here is saying something very strong. It's saying that life, this life, is groaning. This life is full of grief and suffering. Several years ago, I uh, shared um, in a sermon the story of uh, Michael Morton, and uh, the story has never left me. In 1986, he was wrongfully convicted of murder, and he ended up serving 25 years in prison. And what happened is that when he was 32 years old, he was working as a supermarket manager. He had a wife and a three-year-old boy. And then one day after his work shift, he came home to find his, his wife beaten and murdered in their bed. He called the police. They did a hasty investigation and they arrested him. And because of prosecutorial misconduct, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. When he was arrested, his three-year-old son was taken from him. And he was allowed to see his son only once every six months and only for two hours for each visit. And he said that those visits is what kept him alive. Those visits were the only thing he was living for. And he would count the days until the next visit. His boy was raised by his, ended up being raised by his wife's family. And his wife's family thoroughly believed that he was guilty. And so his son grew up believing that his father had murdered his mother. And Michael Borden says, what could he do? How could he convince his son otherwise? And so he didn't. He just wanted a relationship with his son. And then when his son turned... Um, and then, what, and then um, what happened is that the, in prison, uh, Michael Borden didn't have any money. And so he would spend days and weeks... Um, drawing these elaborate mazes, right? Just beautifully illustrated. And then he would mail them to his son because that was the only thing that he could give to his son. That was the only gift that he could give to him. When his son turned 12, he wrote a letter to his father informing him that he would not be visiting anymore. In the letter, he said, you murdered my mother and I hate you I never want to see you again Michael Morton said that it was the greatest agony you can imagine for your son to be taken from you 
and then to hate you, and then to think that you're a murderer. And then in 2005, the uh, Innocence Project took up this case, and they fought in the courts for six years, until finally they were able to use the DNA that had been taken from the crime scene, and it was matched to the real culprit, who was a convicted felon, he was arrested and convicted, and when it was definitively proved that he was innocent, finally, they released him in 2011, 25 years after he was wrongfully imprisoned. This life is marked by suffering. And not just, you know, in these big legal cases. <laughs> not just in these big legal cases, but in our ordinary lives as well. There are broken marriages. There are financial struggles that seem to go on and on. There are chronic health problems. Verse 22 says, all of creation is groaning. Sustenazo. Do you feel it? And I want you to know, it's not just pain. It's futility. In verse 20, it says that creation was subjected to futility. Futility is another really evocative word. It's the Greek word, mateotes. Mateotes means vanity, emptiness, frustration. Uh, the best illustration, I think, is the uh, ancient Greek myth of Sisyphus. You know it. Sisyphus is condemned by the gods to eternal punishment. And so he is given this enormous boulder to push up a hill. And so every day he's pushing and straining with all of his might. And then right before he gets to the top, the stone comes rolling back down. And so he has to start all over again, and he is condemned to do this forever. That's futility. Some of you are saying, that's my workplace. That's my life. It just feels like I'm spinning my wheels, and I'm going nowhere, and my life feels stuck. The Bible says that this life is marked by futility and growth. Now, there are two ways that you can respond. One way is to say, this life is absurd. There's no higher meaning. There's no higher purpose to it all. It's like that uh, great quote from Macbeth. Life is but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I love the poetry of Shakespeare. This is what our secular modern world tells us. There is no God. Or if there is, he doesn't care. He's not paying attention. So life is arbitrary and random. It's like that uh, bumper sticker, right? Stuff happens, except it's a much more vulgar word, right? Stuff happens. It just happens. There's no rhyme or reason to it. 
I think this is how a great many people think about something. It's meaningless. It's traumatic. So avoid it at all costs. And in the meantime, distract yourself. Fill your life with little pleasures. Create a bucket list. You only live once. Whatever you do, don't ask the people questions. Don't think about it too much. But the Bible says that we must wrestle with the reality of suffering. We must come to terms with the inevitability of death. Otherwise, we are denying the truth. We're not in touch with reality. Imagine that um, someone breaks into your home and he holds you at gunpoint. He ties you up. And then he announces, I am going to kill you. Imagine for the purposes of this illustration, there is no chance of escape, no chance of rescue. The person says to you, I am going to kill you. There's nothing you can do to dissuade me, but I am not heartless. Tell me something you enjoy. And if it can be done in this home, I will grant your wish. So you pause for a moment and you say, well, I enjoy playing board games. He says, excellent. Pick out your favorite board game. Let's play one last game together. Won't that make your final moments pleasant? And you say, to be honest, the reality of my impending death has drained all satisfaction out of the game. Because if you are going to die in five minutes, it will rob all meaning and pleasure out of life. Why would you cook a meal? Why would you start a gardening project when nothing will last? Here's the question. What is the difference between that scenario of the home break-in and your life right now? Only duration and time, but the end result is the same. One day, you will die. One day, everyone you know will die. And then the solar system will die. And then life becomes meaningless because nothing lasts. And then suffering is meaningless. And if suffering is meaningless, then life is unyielding despair. That's one way to respond. Despair, to give in to despair. The other way to respond is hope. Verse 20, the text says, the world was subjected to futility in hope. Now what is hope? Hope is a firm understanding and confidence that your bad things will turn out for good. Your bad things will turn out for good. It's a really profound thing. I want you to know, if you have hope, you can endure anything. 
you can endure anything. But if you do not have hope, you will crumble under the weight of your problems. Hope is everything. And so what is the Christian hope? Verse 22. It says, the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. Do you see, this is brilliant. Do you see what Paul has done here? He redefines, he reinterprets the groaning. Right? He says, these are not death groans. These are birth groans. Completely the opposite. It's amazing, right? He says, you know, he's not denying, he's not minimizing the suffering. He says, there is groaning, but the groaning is the groaning of a woman giving birth. I have two boys, Judah and Noah, and uh, I was present at the birth of each. And so I have personally witnessed childbirth twice. And um, for those of you who have not experienced it, let me tell you, it is an incredible ordeal. Christina was in so much pain. She was in absolute agony. There was sweat and tears and and blood and some swearing. (laughs) It was incredible pain. But she was able to endure it. She was able to bear it. Do you know why? Because she had hope. What was her hope? Her hope was this confident understanding that she was bringing a life into the world. That she was giving birth to our son. And that made her groans bearable. I remember when the uh, the nurse placed the baby in her arms and she started Weeping for joy. And that moment redeemed all of her suffering. The Bible says that the sufferings of this present age are birth pains. It's not random or arbitrary, but it is filled with meaning and purpose. Do you understand? And so then the question is, what are we giving birth to? Right? What is this suffering for? What is this baby that we're waiting for? And that leads me to the second point, future glory. Verse 23. The text says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. And then here it is. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, what is this redemption of our bodies? Paul here is talking about the resurrection. And he is not just talking about Jesus' resurrection, which happened in the middle of history. He is talking about 
our resurrection. The resurrection of all of God's people that will happen at the end of history. The Bible says that at the end of history, our king will return. The dead in Christ will rise. And there will be a new creation. A new heavens and a new earth. And then the Bible says on that day, all sadness and evil will be swallowed up into glory. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, what is glory? It's the Greek word doxa. Doxa means shining brilliance. It means splendor. It means radiance. And the, uh, the imagery here is that our sins are like dirt and mud just smeared all over our bodies. And we, and we can't take it off because it's encrusted onto us. Our sins and our idolatries, they cling to us like barnacles on a ship. And so we are covered in shame because of our evil deeds, because of our secret sins. But the Bible says one day all of our sins and weaknesses will be washed away. And then we will shine. We will shine like the noonday sun. We will be radiant and beautiful. In fact, the language of scripture is that we will be immortal and incorruptible, honor and praise echoing in our hearts forever and ever. It is almost beyond human description. We are at the the limits of language to describe it. My favorite attempt at trying to describe it is by C.S. Lewis. He wrote an essay, very well known, called The Weight of Glory. If one day you have a free evening, afternoon, um, and you just want to be filled with wonder and awe, read this essay. I just want to read you a passage of it. Okay? He's trying to describe this glory that is coming. We do not want merely to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. If we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun. At present, we are on the outside of the world, on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New, of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And then listen to this. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then we will put on its glory, or rather that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. We are summoned to pass in through nature, beyond her, into that splendor 
which she fitfully reflects. What is C.S. Lewis saying? He uses kind of complicated language, but what he is saying is that one day, all of our sins, all of our weaknesses will be washed away. And we will be cleansed. And we will become like new. And then we will take on the radiance of Christ. And his perfect moral beauty will become ours. Not just as a cloak that you sort of put on, like an outer garment that's still separate from you. But it will go into you. It will become part of you because you will be transformed into his image. The language of scripture here is very clear about this. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Listen to this. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. In the years after Michael Morton was released from prison, there was um, considerable evidence came out about prosecutorial and police misconduct. The uh, sheriff's department and the uh, prosecutor colluded and they corrupted and twisted the evidence. And so with the help of the Innocence Project, Michael Morton sued and he won his case. And so the, the state of Texas awarded him $2 million in compensation for his pain and suffering, $80,000 for every year that he was wrongfully imprisoned. It was the largest cash award for a lawsuit of that nature in the state of Texas to that point. $2 million. It's a lot of money. But I want to ask you this. Did it make Michael Morton whole? Did it give him those lost years with his son? I want you to know that if in this life only we have hope, we are lost. There is no answer to suffering. Because there is no compensation strong enough to make Michael Morton whole. To make Ukraine, to make Bucha whole. But I want you to know, the Christian hope is so much stronger. In prison, Michael Morton became a devout Christian. And he says that it literally saved his life. Because it allowed him to forgive the people who had wronged him. And he says that when he was finally able to forgive, when he finally let go of vengeance, it was like this terrible weight that had been taken off of his shoulder. And he was able to let go of the, of the bitterness and the hate. And it gave him this freedom. It gave him the strength to endure the brutality of prison. 
And he says one more thing. He says that as a Christian, he knows that his sufferings will one day turn into glory. In verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When you compare the sufferings of this life to the glory to come, it is like comparing a thimble full of water to the vastness of the ocean. What the Bible is saying is that all of our tears, all of our sorrows, all of the heartache, all of the disappointments of this life will one day be swallowed up into the vastness of glory. It's breathtaking. That leads me to my third point, his groaning. Some of you are saying, that's a beautiful thought. I wish it were true. How can we know that it will happen? And the answer is that the Bible says, our groaning will be redeemed because Christ groaned. Some of you are saying, when did Christ groan? And the answer is Christ groaned on the cross. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of you know that he's actually quoting the opening lines of Psalm 22. The way um, quotations work in the New Testament is that when you cite one part or the opening part of an Old Testament passage, you're actually citing the whole thing. And so you need to know that, that on the cross, Jesus was thinking about Psalm 22, all of it. And if we had the time, we would read Psalm 22. It is astonishing, amazing. But let me just read to you the opening lines. Verse 1 says, as we know, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very next line says, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The Bible says that Jesus Christ groaned on the cross. And I want you to know that his groans were truly death groans. They were the groans of ultimate and infinite agony. Because on the cross, he was separated from the love of the Father. On the cross, all of the punishment and the wrath of the sins of the whole world were poured out on him. And the Bible says that because his groans led to death, our groans will lead to joy. That's the gospel. I want to close with the final thought. I want you to know that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we discover the secret to life. And the secret of life is that there is no joy without groaning. There is no glory without suffering. I want you to think again about the birthing metaphor. The birth pains is not incidental to the birth. Do you know what I'm saying, right? It's not as if the birth pains just happen to happen during the birth. But they're producing the baby. If you know a little bit about the physiology of birth, you know that these painful contractions are necessary for the uterine muscles, right, to prepare the birth canal. So that literally you cannot give birth Without pain. Some of you are saying, yes you can. 
you can get an epidural? And the answer is no. Because birth is only the beginning. You cannot give life to your child without depriving yourself of life and health. Every parent knows this. The only way your baby can sleep is you have to lose sleep. The only way your child can grow and flourish is you have to make a thousand little sacrifices in your life. This is the essence of Christianity. The only way that Jesus could give us life is he had to sacrifice his life on the cross. And that is the secret of the universe. The only way to glory is suffering. The only way to eternal joy is you have to groan in this life now. I want to close with a story. Years ago, I, uh, I was reading my boys, The Velveteen Rabbit. The Velveteen Rabbit is a, is a book that many parents have read to their children. And um, I remember as a child having this story read to me, and I thought it was okay. It is a completely different experience as a parent. And I remember as I was reading uh, the story to my boys, I, I started to cry because I was so moved because I realized the Velveteen Rabbit is the gospel story told as a children's fable. In this story, there is a stuffed velveteen rabbit. And he is given as a birthday gift to this little boy. And he's placed in the nursery with all the other toys. And he comes to discover that there is a pecking order to the toys. And in this pecking order, the velveteen rabbit is not very well esteemed. There are expensive uh, mechanical toys. There are fancy models of, of uh, ships and automobiles. And they look down on the Velveteen Rabbit. And they say to him, we look real. But you look plain and ordinary. And they made him feel insignificant. In the nursery, there was a wise, old skin horse who had been in the nursery for a long time. And he was the only one who showed any kindness to the Velveteen Rabbit. And so in the late evenings, the rabbit would talk with the skin horse. And I want to read to you their dialogue, their conversation. Listen to this. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It is a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the horse, for he was always truthful. But when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked. 
or bit by bit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to the people who don't understand. To be used up in this life, in the service of love, is to be transformed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And then listen to this. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I want you to know that one day you will shine like the stars. And the beauty and the greatness of Christ will be yours. And I want you to know that if you have this hope, you can endure anything. You can get through all the troubles of this life. Nothing can push you down. Because you will know that all of your griefs All of your sorrows, they will never be wasted. But they are producing in you like birth pains, like labor pains, a glory to come. That's what the resurrection teaches us. Let's pray. Almighty God, Psalm 126.5 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It's an amazing promise. Our tears will never be wasted, but they are like seeds planted in the ground. And over time, it will yield a future harvest of joy, many times greater than the sorrow. Lord, give us this hope planted in our hearts. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.